Good morning, church. Um, I'll be reading Matthew 9, verses 1 to 17. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, let me say very good morning to you brothers and sisters Stockwell Baptist Church as it's been said my name is uh, Gavin and so uh, if you didn't know that um, I am a, a pastor of a church just down the road near Wandsworth um, Trinity Road Chapel and uh, uh, it's always a joy to be able to uh, renew fellowship with you all uh, when the time becomes uh, available. And so uh, I do want to thank you uh, for this opportunity to open up the Word of God. I'm just going to pray as we turn uh, to that passage that was just read. Um, our Heavenly Father, we would now pray that the voice of our Lord Jesus would address us in his Word and that he would delight with Delight in our company with him, 
Dispel distractions, we pray, worldly distractions or other distractions, that we might know the goodness of Jesus and prefer him to any other um, uh, thing going on perhaps in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, I, I want to begin this sermon talking about Adele, of course. Um, don't know if you love Adele. Don't know if you're a fan. I don't particularly consider myself a, a big Adelite, if, if that's what you should say. But um, uh, the first song she ever wrote, apparently, uh, was a song called Hometown Glory. You might have heard it. You might not have. It doesn't really matter. Um, but her mum basically tried to make her move away from home to go to university. Her home apparently is West Norwood, not far away. Don't know it. Don't know if it's a glorious place. Either way, she thinks it was because in response to her mum's kind of pressure, she wanted to write a song about her devotion and her love for her home. I suppose, yeah, home is a quite a sentimental thing for uh, many of us. You, you have a a kind of pride of place in your heart for the, the, the place you associate with home. Maybe it's a glorious place. Um, for Adele, hometown glory. That's, that, that's the refrain of the song. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, you'll see that Jesus comes home. Yeah? Comes to his home city in verse 1. One, it's Capernaum. Um, Jesus' ultimate home would be Nazareth, I suppose, in this world. He'll get there later on in, in Matthew's Gospel. But for now, he comes to his home city of Capernaum. And as Yannick was preaching last Sunday, Jesus has just been preached, pr proving to this nation he is the Lord. He is the Lord of this nation, Israel, and he is Lord of the entire world, and so it demands that we respond to him as Lord. And so as Jesus comes home, what's he going to discover? Is it going to be a hometown glory for him as its Lord? Is that what he gets as he comes to Capernaum and as he comes home? I don't think he does. I think instead of hometown glory, we find a bit of hometown opposition. But a hometown opposition. And in our, in our passage before us, there are three accusations that really get leveled against the Lord. Three accusations that I want to walk through with you um, in the time that we have together. The first accusation is in verses 1 to 8. Uh, accusation number 1, blasphemer. Blasphemer. You want to follow this, it might be on the screen behind me, but I'll go to verse 2, or verse 2 and 3. Jesus comes to a house, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Um, this is a famous story where uh, four blokes basically rip a hole in the roof 
and lower their paralyzed friend on a mat to the feet of Jesus. It's interesting, Matthew doesn't give you any of that detail. That's a bit of a surprise because of how dramatic it is. Why would you want to leave that out? Um, surprise that. I, do, I think he misses the detail out because I wonder if he's more interested in the opposition. And he wants to get to the opposition to Jesus here as fast as possible. Because Jesus makes an extraordinary claim to uh, this paralyzed man. And it's about his lordship. You know, what's the claim that the Lord has just made? He sees the paralyzed man, but he sees something more important than the man's paralysis. It's more important than lifelong paralysis, as devastating as that is. What does Jesus see? He sees faith. Yeah? And because he sees faith, he goes to a deeper problem than paralysis. He goes for sin itself. And because of faith, he says, I can forgive you of your sin. What a claim. Yeah? Mighty promise. It's the great promise of the gospel, in fact. Forgiveness of sin by the great Lord Jesus. What a claim. Yet, we have the opposition. Verse 3, this, because, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, what do they say, verse 3? Oh, this man is blaspheming. He's a blasphemer. You little heretic. That's what they think, yeah? You little heretic. Blasphemer. Who does this character think he is? Who does he think he is? Only God is able, right? Right? Only God is the one with the lordship to forgive sin. No one else can. And yet here we have Jesus saying he can do it. He's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. A serious accusation, isn't it? That kind of thing gets, gets you put to death. You think of blasphemy laws in other parts of our world. What happens when someone comes under that accusation? It's serious. Serious here too. Will he die? Well, let's look at Jesus' response to this accusation in his home city. Verse 4 to 6, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, or literally seeing their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Now, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. Um, because to say get up and walk requires immediate proof. Yeah? And if this bloke can't walk when Jesus tells him to come up and walk, who is it to say that Jesus can do the harder thing in forgiving sin? Jesus is having to prove, therefore, his lordship in light of this accusation. I will prove to you, Pharisee or scribe, 
you in the room this morning, me too, I have lordship over the heart. I'm going to prove that to you. He's proving he's God. By making the man walk, he's saying to his opponents, this is proof I can forgive you of your sin. And so they have to respond in faith. Yeah? That is the only response, the appropriate response. Only God alone can forgive sin. Him. What do you think when you think of evil? Like, who do you think of when you naturally think of the word evil? You know, maybe our minds go to, like, the worst people, the worst things, the Holocaust, dreadful evil, um, child abusers, terrible evil, right? We might go to terrible things or terrible people. All true, of course. Yeah, that's true. But the first place Jesus goes to when he thinks about evil is how the heart thinks about him. Doesn't he? It's interesting. How does the heart think about me? Why do you think evil in your hearts? You are evil, Pharisee, on the basis of what you think of me. Ask yourself that question this morning. Who do you think Jesus is? Is he the Lord? The only necessary Lord that can forgive and must forgive you of your sin? Do you realize your need of that? Or is Jesus to you a blasphemer? Is he a heretic? Do you agree with his opponents? And before we move on from the opposition, I want you to notice a bit more opposition here. And this is more subtle. Because at the end of our passage here, or verse 8, what happens when the crowd see this? Because when the crowd saw it, they were afraid they gave glory to God. So far, so good. That seems like a really good response. But then it said they glorified God because he had given such authority to men. Oh dear, that subtle opposition to Jesus. Why? Because do you see what the crowd have done? They've classified Jesus as just belonging to the ordinary category of human beings. That's not true of Jesus at all. He's not just a man. He's not just an ordinary man. He is the Son of God. He is the Divine Lord. He doesn't belong in the category of ordinary people as the crowds put him in. Do you see what they've done there? That is subtle opposition, but evil. They see the miracle, they don't see the meaning. The meaning is forgiveness of sin. Are we opposing Jesus in the same manner? Yeah? Serious accusation, isn't it? To say Jesus is a blasphemer. But that's what he gets as he comes to his home city. Accusation number two. What's the second kind of hostility he gets here? Accusation number two. The wrong company. The wrong company. I'm going from verse nine here. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. But who is a sinner? Yeah? Who's a sinner? Am I a sinner? Are you a sinner? 
very next thing that happens in this passage is that Jesus sees a man. And a man that this ancient culture would classify as a sinner. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Matthew rose and followed him. Calling of Matthew, isn't it? The very writer of the gospel that is before us, also called Levi. Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his followers. What a wonderful thing to do. And verse 10, Jesus reclined at table, so he has a meal with Matthew. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and they were reclining at the table with Jesus and his disciples. Here comes the opposition, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See the opposition there? You see the hostility? This time, Jesus keeps the wrong company, doesn't he? Tax collectors, sinners, the disreputables in the culture. You know, a tax collector was a friend of Rome, or seemed to be. And if he's a friend of Rome, he's an enemy to Israel. So they hated them. They hated the tax collectors. The tax collector is a cultural category of what a sinner looks like. And how to identify one. And here is Jesus having a meal, enjoying time with such distributable, sinful company. You can't do that if you're a spiritual person, if you love God. Um, your culture does the same. Your culture has ways of identifying who a sinner is. And who the righteous is. We all, we all have ways. We see it happen. You know, I came across a story, like, just maybe a week and a half ago. Um, there is a school in Wembley, not far away, doing great work with underprivileged kids. Um, doing fantastic work, getting really good results of kids that wouldn't normally have the same chance in life. But the headmistress of that school did a terrible thing. You wonder what she did. She invited a man to come and see the school. He's a man called Jordan Peterson. And what happened when she invited him to come and see her school? People were raging. Um, Twitter and all of that went into uproar. Hate crimes were reported. People went into a meltdown. And why? Because they felt the wrong company was being... Um, being experienced at this school the wrong company the man's a sinner you can't be seen publicly in that place I'm just trying to illustrate that your culture has ways of trying to understand the sinner from the same and you can't share company we might think of our government I'm told in, in the media the conservative party are oppressors that might be true in some sense but they are a cultural category of a sinner. Maybe we think of the people in prison that are under justice. They are a sinner. They've been condemned as breaking the law. Cultural categories of sinners. 
Do you see how it happens? This culture did it too. This is important. Why is this important? Because like, if, I can, if I can point out who the, the sinners are, then I can safely say about myself, well, I'm okay, because I'm not one of them. I can safely say I'm okay, I'm not one of them. You see the danger there? I'm okay, I'm a saint. I think that's what the Pharisees are doing here. The tax collector, the people who hung up with the Romans, the sinners. But we're the righteous ones, we're the saints. Now, church, are you ready for the surprise? Ready for the surprise? The reply of Jesus. Verse 11. What does he say? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Here's the reply. He says to the Pharisees, you are exactly right. That is why I came, to be with sinners. That's the, that's, that's the surprise. That's exactly why I've come here, to seek them out, to call them to myself. He doesn't come to agree with sin, far be it. He doesn't do that. The, the picture here proves that. He comes as a doctor to heal it. To prescribe medication. He's a doctor. He's a friendly doctor. That's who Jesus is. He's a friendly doctor who comes to experience the company with sinners to heal them. How kind is that? You know, Levi or Matthew, he's not a, he's not a sinner because he's a tax collector. He's a sinner because he's born into the fall of Adam. The Pharisees couldn't see that. How good is our Lord Jesus? He, pr he promises in the Bible friendship with you. Friendship with sinners. Perhaps the highest blessing in all of the Bible. Friendship with the Lord. And he's only friends with sinners. And that's the point. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Enjoy friendship with Jesus. Do you enjoy his company? You go to scripture, you open it, you read it. And every time we do that, we should expect Jesus is waiting for us there. He's waiting to befriend us there. He's waiting to love us there. You feel guilty over sin, maybe. Do you feel the... Um, pain of shame or discouragement. Do we often wish we were just so different? You go to Jesus. He's waiting to be friends with you, to heal you, to soothe the wounds. Highest blessing in the Bible, surely. You see him here with the company, the precious promises he comes to with. What a Lord. You know, it's a great hymn. Love this hymn. We sometimes sing it. At TRC, come ye sinners, it is, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love and power. Isn't he the friend of sinners? 
Isn't that the company he keeps to heal us with his gospel love? What a friend, the best of friends. But you might not be sick. That's a danger. You might not think you're ill. Maybe there is no sin in your heart. Maybe you're already righteous. All right then. Jesus will never be your friend. He will never be your savior. You know, I've got a quote here by a man that um, was a victim of the Soviet-Russian thing. Threw all of innocent Russians into a into prisons all over Russia uh, turn of the century terrible terrible crimes were done to this man and you would be forgiven and so would I thinking he might think of himself better than his captors because of the way they oppressed him and the way that they sinned against him he might think I'm a bit more righteous than them I've got this quote it's amazing I've never suffered in such a manner. I hope I never do. But as he thinks about his captors, here's what he says. He says, if, it, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Then he asks this, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Unbelievable. A, a, a victim of terrible captors. And he looked at the captors and says, am I better than them? He says, I've got, as I look at myself, there is nothing better in me that should be any better than them. He doesn't draw up a line, a cultural category of sinner and saint. And that's a pretty honest look at one's own heart. We're sick. We all are. And here is the friend of sinners who comes to you. That's accusation number two. Jesus keeps the wrong company. One more. Accusation number three. He has too much freedom. He has too much freedom. Verses 14 to 17. We conclude from verse 14. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? There's the opposition. It's basically to say, why are you partaking rather than abstaining? You've got too much freedom. And more serious... Your disciples, Jesus, are following you into this lifestyle choice. It's more hostility. Yeah? Too much freedom. You should withhold yourself from food rather than enjoy it. Jesus said to them, verse 15, here's his reply. First part of it, at least. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. 
think that's a reply about joy, isn't it? Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the great promise of the Old Testament who's finally come. He's the bridegroom. He's the Messiah and the man that loves to um, uh, marry his loved ones. Weddings, which is the picture here, tend to be, at least, a picture of feasting, of celebration, of joy. My wedding was a happy occasion. They tend to be, don't they? Now I know Jesus will be put to death. That will be a time to mourn and to fast. Wicked men will put him on the cross. But fundamentally, the Christian is about joy. Why? Because he's come. Jesus has come. The bridegroom has finally come. So why would you fast? Why would you abstain now that the longed-for Messiah has finally come for his people? It's not a time for fasting. This is not a time of abstaining, but celebrating. Holiness. Holiness is not achieved if you have strict rules, if it's austerity or abstinence. Holiness is not achieved that way. Yes, there are appropriate times to fast. Jesus is saying never fast here. But the point is it doesn't achieve spiritual maturity. It doesn't achieve holiness because Jesus does that. Jesus does that in us by the Spirit. The bridegroom has finally come. He makes you holy by his righteousness. What good does my fasting do? Without Jesus, without the joy of his finished work on the cross, my fasting does me no good. It doesn't make me holy. That's what they thought it did. So shouldn't you celebrate? Shouldn't we be full of joy at what Jesus has done for us? I think that's, I think that's the tenor of the Christian life. And even in suffering, James will say, consider it full of joy. What? Well, it's because of Christ. Not because it feels good, but because it's Christ who is with us. That's, that's the first part to Jesus' response to this opposition. The bridegroom has come. This is a happy time for you. Verse 16 and 17, he goes on to illustrate this really. Because he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Two simple illustrations. You don't use new cloth to repair old cloth. Secondly, new wineskins cannot be put into old wineskins. You know, in this culture, wineskins would be made of something like goat hair. And after a time, they would harden, they would shrivel, and they would grow old. And so if you tried to put new wine into such old wineskins, it would be unable to facilitate it. It would burst, and the wine is ruined, and the wineskin also. So new wine must go into new wineskins so that both the wine and the skin is not 
damaged. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, the new has come. The new has come. And the old ways and the old traditional ways of thinking have come to an end in me. The new has come. But if you try to use old religious traditions to become holy, to become righteous, to live in the light of the new, which is the coming of Jesus, you're going to destroy yourself. Let us imagine, I think my relationship with God is bolstered by, I don't know, strict rule keeping, abstinence, that sort of thing. I don't drink wine, I might keep away secular music, I sacrifice certain home comforts, and that can look holy from the outside. It can. It can be full of virtue from the outside. But it can destroy you. It won't make you holy. The Pharisees thought it did. Um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus criticizes the misuse of fasting. You can go and read that for yourself. It doesn't make you righteous. It's a religious way of thinking. Jesus says, now that I've come, the new is here and the new is better. I will make you holy. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. It destroys faith. It may ruin salvation in the Lord Jesus. You know, Jesus comes to his hometown, doesn't he? Home city. There's no glory for him, especially in the religious elites here. There's opposition. And we're reminded that Jesus overturns cultural categories of his own home, of his own nation. That's why he's opposed the way that he is. In some ways, we all have to reckon with the fact that Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to our old way of thinking. He's a threat to the categories we often think of as right and wrong, sinner and saint. He overturns them. Um, He comes to upset the culture of my own heart. That's not easy to hear. And yet, for the one that has ears to hear, we receive him as a friend and as a saviour. It's so sad that they didn't understand mercy. In our previous passage, go and learn what, find out what mercy is. Forget about the sacrifice for a bit, Pharisees. Go and discover mercy, because that's what God is like. Merciful to sin is merciful to our own hearts and lives. Brothers and sisters, I've gone on long enough. I'll pray, and then some will come up and lead us in our final hymn. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what an astonishing Lord, Saviour, and friend Jesus is. We're sinners, though. We're broken. Sick and poor, we've been ruined by the fall. Yet, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Jesus came to call sinners. Not to make us righteous on our own efforts, but to make us righteous in himself. By his own goodness and his own love. May we all rejoice in the prescribed medication of Jesus. His company to us and the promises of his word.